what does spiritual awakening look like? We, we talk about spiritual awakening and revival. What does it actually look like when God moves in that way? Well, as a, an example, I want to share with you the story of a teenage Charles Spurgeon, an English preacher in the 1800s. At age 17, Charles Spurgeon was asked to preach in a small village of 1,300 people named Water Beach. And his first day preaching this old Baptist church in the village, there were 12 people present. After he preached to them a few times, they called him as pastor, and the size of the church was about uh, 40 people. After two years of pastoring, there were over, in the small village, there were over 400 people attending the church. And not only that, Tom Nettles writes, Conversions were many, and the transformation of the entire town was remarkable. Swearing, illicit liquor stills, broken homes, public drunkenness, and general debauchery were replaced with industrious living, generosity, joy, and public and private worship. Spurgeon recalls this time in his life. He writes, It was a pleasant thing to walk through that place when drunkenness had almost ceased, when debauchery in the case of many was dead, when men and women went forth to labor with joyful hearts singing the praises of the ever-living God, and when at sunset the humble cottager called his children together, read them some portion from the book of truth, and then together they bent their knees in prayer to God. Spurgeon goes on to say, It pleased the Lord, listen, to work wonders in our midst. He showed the power of Jesus' name and made me a witness of that gospel which can win souls, draw reluctant hearts, and mold afresh the life and conduct of sinful men and women. That's what awakening looks like, where the gospel permeates and transforms not just a church, but an entire community. And this morning we're going to study a city named Antioch from the book of Acts. And we're going to see how awakening happened in this town called Antioch in a similar way that we just read about Water Beach. And it's very important that we pay close attention as we dig into our study this morning because I believe that awakening is the great need of our day. I believe that spiritual awakening is the only hope for America. And so it's important that we understand what awakening is all about. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we are working our way through this book, line by line, verse by verse. And we've come to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. I'd like to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. This morning in my quiet time, I was reading in Luke, and I was reading about Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then after he entered Jerusalem, he went and taught in the temple, and the religious leaders wanted to arrest him, but it says they were afraid because he was surrounded by people, listen, that were hanging on his words. And I thought, man, wouldn't it be awesome if at Longview Point this morning, we were actually hanging on every word that God has to say to us. There in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, the Bible says, 
Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus, an island just into the Mediterranean, and Cyrene, which is North Africa, modern-day Libya, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's Greek-speaking Jews, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people, watch this, a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, you are great and glorious. You are holy. You are righteous. You are sovereign. You are almighty. You are the one that created everything. You are the one that created us. And you are the one who is our only hope for redemption. We're grateful, Lord, that you loved us so much that you sent your only son, that he would come to this earth and die on the cross for our sins, and rise from the dead so that we could have eternal life, so that we could experience forgiveness, so that we could experience victory over death itself and have the hope that only comes from Jesus. We are so grateful for your love today. And we are grateful, Lord, for your presence in this place. We ask that you would move with power. Holy Spirit of God, would you just work in our hearts that we might see the truth of Scripture and have the wherewithal to obey what we see. Would you transform our lives? May the name of Jesus be exalted in this place. Give us the grace to hang on every word that you say. And we'll thank you for it. Lord, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've worked our way through the book of Acts, we've seen how the gospel has spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then into the Gentile world in a dramatic way. We studied uh, the last few weeks Peter going to Caesarea and entering the home of a Gentile named Cornelius and preaching the gospel to his household, and they were saved. And this is the beginning of the explosive growth of the gospel into the Gentile world. And the scene shifts at the end of chapter 11 from Caesarea to Antioch. And Antioch is an interesting city. Matter of fact, look what it says there in verse 19. It says, Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, verse 20, who on coming to Antioch spoke the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Antioch was an interesting city. It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, located on the Orentis River, about 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. It had a population of over half a million people. It ranked as the third largest city in the Roman Empire, following Rome and Alexandria. Its magnificent buildings helped give it the name Antioch the Golden, Queen of the East. 
The main street of Antioch was four miles long, paved with marble and lined on both sides by marble colonnades. It was the only city in the ancient world that had its streets lit at night. Antioch was a busy port and a center for luxury and culture. It attracted all kinds of people, including wealthy retired Roman officials who spent their days chatting in the baths or gambling at the races. With its large cosmopolitan population and its great commercial and political power, Antioch presented to the church an exciting opportunity for evangelism. But here's what you need to understand. Antioch, with all of its greatness and all of its splendor and all of its wealth and all of its influence, Antioch was a wicked city. Though all of the Greek and Roman and Syrian deities were honored in this city, the local shrine was dedicated to Daphne, whose worship included vile and immoral practices. A Roman satirist named Juvenal complained, saying, The sewage of the Syrian Orontes has for long been discharged into the Tiber. By this he meant that Antioch was so corrupt, it was impacting Rome more than 1,300 miles away. That's how wicked and immoral and vile this city was. And then we see in Acts that Christians enter this city and preach the gospel, and awakening comes. And what I want to do is I want to just walk through this passage and make four comments about spiritual awakening. Uh, In fact, I want to walk through four stages, if you will, of spiritual awakening and see how the gospel permeated this wicked city. And by the way, there's some parallels between this city and what's happening in our nation today, right? There's great pervasive wickedness everywhere we look. Much immorality, much evil, much wickedness that is breathtaking and shocking, but it's happening around us. And here's the point I want you to walk away with. If awakening can happen in Antioch, awakening can happen in our nation and can reach the uttermost parts of the earth. So what are the four stages of spiritual awakening? Number one, awakening starts... Awakening starts. It has to have a starting place. And look what it says there in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. We see here the start of awakening, the beginning of awakening, the genesis of awakening. And there are four essential components that we see here uh, that are are important for an awakening to begin. What components need to be in place for awakening to happen? Well, number one, we see the providence of God. The providence of God, it says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Now, if you remember few chapters ago, we studied Stephen in Acts chapter 7, preaching the gospel to the Jewish religious leaders, and they were infuriated that he would preach Jesus Christ, and so they stoned him. And after they stoned him, great persecution arose against all Christians in that area, and it was so intense, so fierce, that Christians began to scatter from Jerusalem into outlying areas. And some of those who were scattered made it all the way to Phoenicia, that's on the coast, and to Cyprus, that's the island right off the coast in the Mediterranean. And they made it all the way 300 miles to Antioch. And they were there in these places because of the persecution, the scattering that happened as a result of the persecution, which, which reminds us that God was in it. 
God used the persecution of some evil men to get Christians to scatter to the places that needed to hear the gospel. And so, even though it looks like a desperate time for Christians, God is in control. And God is putting all the pieces in place by his providence, in his sovereignty, to make sure that places like Cyprus and places like Phoenicia and places like Antioch have a Christian witness. And and listen to me, I believe that God will not hesitate. I want you to hear me. God will not hesitate to make us uncomfortable if it means that we scatter to preach the gospel. And that's what happens here in this text. There's, a, there's the providence of God to get Christians to these areas that need to hear about Jesus. But not only do we see the providence of God, we see the prayers of God's people. The prayers of God's people. Now this is not explicit in this text. It doesn't mention the prayers of God's people. But we understand by seeing the unfolding of the church in the book of Acts that prayer undergirded all that they did. As a matter of fact, turn back with me to Acts chapter 4. I want to remind you, Acts chapter 4. Verse 30, let me show you how the early Christians prayed. This is after they were threatened. They were commanded to stop preaching the gospel, so they go back and they pray together. In verse 29 they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And so often through the book of Acts, they are calling out to God, praying, asking God for power, asking God for courage. And as we see the Christians minister with power and preach the gospel with courage, we can, we can safely assume that prayer undergirded these efforts. Because here's the deal. As we look at the Bible and we look at human history, there is an inextricable link between prayer and awakening. Every time we see God move with power, we see people, sometimes a very small group of people, but we see people praying. And so the first two components of awakening are starting is the providence of God and the prayers of God's people. There have been some amazing movements of God in human history. For example, if you look at the history of Christianity in South Korea, you will see that Christianity exploded in South Korea. And wait, what would you attribute that to? Well, we know that there was an extended period of time when South Koreans would get up at four in the morning and they would go to a mountain and they would pray for two hours to start their day. Is it any wonder that God sent awakening to South Korea? There's a link between prayer and Awakening. But the third essential component for the start of awakening is the proclamation of the gospel. Look what it says in verse 19. It says, There are some men that traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they were only comfortable speaking to other Jews. But there was another group of men. Look what it says in verse 20. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, Greek-speaking, Greek-background Jews. So they wanted not just the the Hebrew-speaking Jews to hear the gospel, they wanted the Greek-speaking Jews to hear the gospel. And by extension, the Gentile world, they wanted them to hear the gospel. So notice, they were preaching, it says in verse 20, the Lord Jesus. When you have... God moving in providence and people praying and asking God to move with power and you have people actually opening up their mouths and sharing the gospel, that is a recipe for awakening to begin. That's what's happening here. They're they're preaching the Lord Jesus. And I believe, listen to me, I believe that awakening will not come until we begin to open up our mouths and talk about Jesus. 
which might be the problem in America. Because statistically, very few of those that name the name of Jesus ever talk about their faith in a way that challenges someone else to consider the claims of Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior. So we see the proclamation of the gospel. And then fourth, we see the power of God. Look in verse 21. It says, and don't miss this, this is so important, the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. We will never see a mighty movement of God without God's direct intervention in our lives and in our community and in our nation and in our world. God must move for awakening to come. And here in this text, the hand of the Lord is upon what's happening in Antioch. And and God moves with power. It's an essential element for the start of awakening. And so every movement of God has a starting place. Here in Antioch, we see the starting place. It reminds me of Mission Impossible. The the old TV show, or if you've seen the movies, Mission Impossible. You you know, the beginning credits open with, with a fuse being lit. And that fuse is burning across the screen, right? And it just keeps burning across the screen. And, and the idea is that it's going to reach the, the, the explosive device and it's going to explode. Well, here in Acts, 19, or Acts 11, 19 and 20, we see the fuse of God's glory being lit. And it is burning and it's about to explode into Antioch and into the Gentile world. The start of awakening. But not only do I want you to see awakening started, I want you to see awakening strengthened. Awakening strengthened. After its starting point, it is, this movement of God is, is strengthened. And it's strengthened by a man named Barnabas and his ministry. And, and it really is built upon a ministry of encouragement. He was called the Son of Encouragement. That was his nickname. How encouraging do you have to be for someone to nickname you Son of Encouragement? Answer, you have to be real, real encouraging, right? And Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. Let me give you two, two aspects of, of this encouragement. First of all, I want you to see the characteristics of an encourager. The characteristics of an encourager. Look what it says in verse 23. Or back to verse 22. The report of this, this movement of God that started, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, Barnabas was the perfect choice. For one, he was an encourager. Two, he was from Cyprus. So he would be around other men from Cyprus and would have that level of credibility. And so they send Barnabas to Antioch to check it out. He makes the 300-mile journey. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And what did he do? He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For, look in verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so what are the characteristics of an encourager? We see them here in Barnabas. First of all, spirit-empowered Christian character is key if we're going to be encouragers. Spirit-empowered Christian character. It says there in verse 24 that he was a... Good man. Why was he a good man? Look at the next phrase. Full of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit has control of your life, when you are filled with the Spirit, as you surrender to Him daily, 
the one who lives on the inside of you, he will begin to build into your life and exhibit through your life Christian character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness, courage, boldness. And, and what we see here is that, is that Barnabas is filled with the Spirit. The Spirit has control of his life. And because he's filled with the Spirit, he has Christian character. It says there, he is a good man. Who better to encourage others than someone who is good, right? So he's a good man, a decent man, a a righteous man, a a man who can come and speak into this this movement of God. So he had spirit-empowered Christian character. Secondly, he had visionary belief in God's promises and power. Visionary belief in God's promises and power. Look what it says in verse 24. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. A man of faith. He believed God's word. He, he trusted God's word and adjusted his life accordingly. He knew God was faithful. He knew God was powerful. And he saw in this movement, this new movement in Antioch, the potential for great awakening. And so those are the characteristics of an encourager. That you are full of the Spirit, you're a good person, you're focused on the things of God, and you have vision because you have faith in the promises and power of God. But then let's, let's look at the content of encouragement. What did Barnabas actually say to them that encouraged and strengthened this awakening? Look what he says in verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with stead. Fast purpose. First of all, people need to be encouraged to be faithful. Did you notice that? He says he exhorted them, encouraged them all to remain faithful. It's as if Barnabas is saying to these new believers in Antioch, now that you are following Jesus, there's no turning back. He wants to transform you, and he wants to use you as an, as an instrument for his glory. So keep your eyes upon him. Do what he tells you to do. Be faithful. Be faithful, and God will use you. And listen to me, new believers, people that have been believers for decades, we all need to be encouraged to faithfulness, right? To keep on keeping on, to not grow weary in doing good, to, to, to surrender our lives to the will and the way of God so God can use us. So people need to be encouraged to be faithful. And people need to be encouraged to be wholehearted. Look what it says in verse 23. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord, watch this, with steadfast purpose. That phrase, steadfast purpose, is literally with a heart of purpose or a resolute heart. The word cardia is in there where we get cardiac from. And, and so he says he, he encouraged them, exhorted them to be faithful and, and, and to remain faithful with, with resolute hearts, with, with strong hearts. Now the word translated steadfast, as I said, is cardiac, but the word translated purpose is Prothesi, it was used in reference to the sacred bread in the temple that was set out weekly before God. It, was, it, it spoke of the, the bread being placed in the temple before the presence of God. So here's what, what it's saying. Barnabas was encouraging the believers to take their heart and present it to God. As if to say, God, my heart is yours. You don't have just a part of my life. You have 
all of my life. You don't have just a portion of my heart. You have all of my heart. I'm presenting it to you. Question. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you said, God, you have all of my heart? God, I surrender all. But Because here's the game we like to pr- play in American Christianity. We like to pr- play the compartmentalization game. Where, where we give God part of our life, part of our heart, but not all of it. We want to hold on to these areas over here. We don't want God to have anything to do with them. But Barnabas is saying, remain faithful and, and, and wholehearted. Present him all of your heart. And so we see here the content of encouragement. This movement was strengthened because someone like Barnabas was speaking into these Christians' lives and and encouraging them to be faithful and to be wholehearted. Barnabas here reminds me of a coach. It's interesting how much of an impact a coach can have on your life. I remember growing up playing sports, and I can remember specific sentences that my coaches said to me through the years that really impacted me, good and bad. I can remember them very, very clearly. A coach has a great amount of impact, but a good coach, listen to me, a good coach sees potential, right? And then knows how to encourage the players to live up to that potential. Or in other words, a coach knows how to get the most out of his players or her players. And that's what Barnabas is doing here. Barnabas sees the potential of this awakening, this this movement that has begun. He sees what God is doing, and he speaks into the movement and says, Listen, your lives have earth-shaking potential. Be faithful. Give him your whole heart, and you can imagine how God will use you. And let me just say this to Longview Point Baptist Church. Be faithful. Give him your whole heart and you can't imagine how God will use you. And so we see awakening strengthened, but third, we see awakening sustained. We've seen it start, we've seen it strengthening, but I want to show you how this awakening, this movement of God was sustained. Look what it says in verse 24. It says that Barnabas was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So at the beginning of the awakening, a great number are being added to the Lord. After some time has passed, Barnabas spent some time there, there are still people being added to the Lord. This was not a, a, a one-time thing. It was not a, a weekend crusade. It was not a powerful worship service. This was a, a consistent movement of God over time. So how do you explain... This awakening being sustained. Well, first of all, this spiritual awakening was nurtured by strong Bible teaching in the context of the local church. Look what it says in verse 25. A great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember Saul? Saved on the road to Damascus. He spent some time in the Arabian wilderness being taught by God. He went to Jerusalem and was preaching the gospel. And some folks wanted to kill him. So the believers got him out of Jerusalem and sent him back to his hometown of Tarsus to let the the heat die down, if you will. And Saul was in Tarsus for probably around 8 to 10 years, if we look at the timeline of Acts. And he was just there, learning and growing and, and probably doing ministry. 
Some people believe that some of the lists that he has in some of his letters speak of things that happened during this 10-year period. But Barnabas says, you know what? There's so many folks being saved. There's so much need for follow-up and people to be taught and grounded in the faith. I need some help. So Barnabas goes back to Tarsus to get Saul and says, come teach the word with me. And that's what happens. Look what happens in verse 25. He went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And so for a year, Barnabas and Saul, these wonderful men of God, these wonderful Bible teachers, are spending time teaching these new believers in Antioch what it means to walk with God. And a church is started. Do you notice what it says? It says, for a whole year, verse 26, they met with the church. They're not meeting with a bunch of unrelated Christians that are just kind of floating around Antioch. These folks got together. And they started a church. They, they bound together for worship and service and to practice the ordinances. And, 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 and Paul and, and Barnabas come and begin to teach the church. And that's why this movement was sustained. You might say this movement was sustained because of the follow-up. The focus on maturing the new believers gave stability and staying power to the awakening. It's interesting that early on in Billy Graham's evangelistic ministry, where he would go into a city and draw thousands of people and preach the gospel and hundreds or thousands of people were saved, that he saw the need to, before he went into a city, to gather the churches beforehand. Because Billy Graham understood and he saw happening that if new believers are not followed up with, if they're not incorporated into a local church where they can be discipled and they can grow, then what God does, that, that awakening that he begins can fizzle out because it's not being sustained by good Bible teaching. And so this Bible teaching from Barnabas and Saul gave stability and staying power to the awakening. I think it's interesting to note that in verse 26 it says, in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Probably a term of derision in that day. But here's what it means. It means that the people were taking notice, right? All of a sudden, there was so much movement related to these folks that were following Christ that the people in Antioch took notice. There's this whole new thing happening here. And they even labeled it. Those folks are little Christs. They are Christians. In other words, this was not a flash-in-the-pan religious movement. People were being deeply transformed Families were being transformed, and Antioch itself was being changed by the gospel. There's a great revival in Wales in 1904 and 1905. I encourage if you get an opportunity to read about that revival. Thousands, tens of thousands were saved. It was a mighty movement of God. And there's a professor named D.A. Carson that had the privilege of meeting with a woman who actually was converted as a, as a young child during the Welsh Revival. So D.A. Carson got to ask this lady what it was like being in that revival. He says that conversation was an inexpressibly glorious half hour. He just loved talking about what God did in 1904 and 1905. But then D.A. Carson makes this comment. He comments on how sad it is that so little of the revival was preserved. And he says this, 
Almost nothing was done to capture or develop theological schools, multiply Bible teaching, or train a new generation of preachers. So D.A. Carson, after talking to this woman, made this pledge. This, This Christian professor made this pledge. Should the Lord in his mercy ever pour out large-scale revival on any part of the world where I have influence, I shall devote all my energy to teaching the word, to training a new generation of godly pastors, to channeling all of this God-given fervor toward doctrinal maturity, multiplication of Christian leaders, evangelistic zeal, maturity in Christ, and genuine Christian fellowship. D.A. Carson says, if I'm ever part of awakening, I'm going to give everything I have to follow up and help people dig their roots deep into the truth. So this awakening will not be a flash in the pan, but it will have sustaining power. It will last. Notice the Welsh Revival was... 1904 and 1905, that's it. See, what we need is a third great awakening. You read about the first great awakening in America, started somewhere around 1726 or early 1730s, depending on what events you're looking at. And it went on for decades. You look at the, the second great awakening, started around 1800, early 1800s. Some people date it late 1700s, but early 1800s. And it went for decades. And it changed things in our nation We don't need, listen, we don't need a one-day awakening. We don't need a one-week awakening. We don't need a two-year awakening. We need an awakening that will go on for decades. So when we see God begin to save people and transform families, our work is just beginning, right? We follow up. We go deep in the truth. We teach, 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 teach. So the awakening will be sustained. Which leads me to the fourth and final stage of awakening. We've seen in Antioch how awakening starts. And we've seen awakening being strengthened and awakening sustained. But fourth and last, I want to talk to you about how awakening spreads. How awakening spreads. Look what it says in verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so during this awakening, this prophet arises, uh, arise, arrives and arises and says, listen, there's a great famine coming. It's going to affect your Christian brothers and sisters. So how does the church respond? Well, if you look there in your notes, awakening spreads when God's people maintain an outward focus. Look at how they respond in verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone in in Antioch, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So immediately, oh, they're going to go through famine? They're going to have a hard time? Let's take up an offering. And they send the money to help their brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, you see how how quickly their focus is turned outward. Not only that, but fast forward to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Awakening spreads, listen, when God's people maintain a posture of obedience. Look what it says in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So God says, I want Barnabas and Saul to leave your church and go on a missionary journey. How do they respond? No, wait a minute, God. No, no. They're, they're our best Bible teachers. We're not going to do that. Send somebody else. Is that how they respond? No, look what it says. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Outward focus. If God wants us to send out our best Bible teachers, we'll do it. Because we want people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Awakening spreads when God's people maintain a posture of obedience. And what you see happening is missionaries in chapter 13 leaving Antioch and and getting the gospel to Greece and to Asia and to Rome in dramatic, phenomenal ways. Awakening spreads because these believers in Antioch had an outward focus. Let me tell you, look at me for a moment. Let me tell you what will kill awakening quicker than anything. Inward focus. Inward focus kills awakening. I know God has blessed us and I know we got to send out folks to the ends of the earth. I know we got to plant church. I know we got to do all this stuff. But uh, Wade, what about the paint on the walls? I don't like that color. Or what about the carpet color? Or what about my seat? Or what about the crowds around me? And and, and the minute we start talking about our comfort and, and what we need and what we want... And, and we take our eyes off of the, the world that is lost and perishing and dying, awakening dies. And we want awakening to spread. It reminds me of the Ebola outbreak. Remember last year the, the really frightening outbreak of Ebola, this virus that originates in Africa, and it spread through a measure of, of personal contact with someone that carries the virus. And not only did the Ebola virus spread to different cities and villages, it spread to different countries. And not only did it spread to different countries, it spread to different continents. It even came to North America, right? It was scary. And Ebola brings death. It's destructive. It's an it's a awful virus. But listen to me. The gospel brings life. And what if the life-giving gospel spread with the same intensity that Ebola spread. And it began to spread into other cities and communities and other states and other nations and other continents with the life-giving good news that Jesus saves sinners. That's what we're after. Not just an emotional worship time as our church as we experience awakening, but we want to see awakening spread so others can be saved. And so here's the point of it all. As we study Acts chapter 11 and what happened in Antioch. By the way, the church in Antioch, every time you see them in, in, in the book of Acts, they're just sending people out. They're just a missions-focused church. I want to be a church like Antioch. But, but here's what I want you to walk away with. We need to pray and obey in anticipation of a third great awakening that will sweep our nation and extend to the nations. I'll say it again. We need to pray and obey in anticipation of a 
third great awakening that will sweep our nation and extend to the nations. We can't make awakening happen. Only God in his providence can send awakening. But surely we can pray like we've never prayed before. And surely we can labor in obedience with an outward focus, anticipating that God is going to send a mighty movement of His Spirit that will transform us and will spread like wildfire. Isn't that, or shouldn't that be the goal? Let me close by saying this. And this is not hyperbole. This is not just preacher talk to elicit some sort of response. You know me better than that. But I really believe, I really believe, let me say it like this, I sense that this church is on the verge of a touch of awakening. I really do. I believe we are positioned by God's grace. He's done so much in the life of our church to bring us to this moment. And I believe that if we will cry out to Him and pray like we've never prayed before, and, and radically obey him. I believe we could see awakening happen here. And then trust God to cause it to spread everywhere for his glory. That is our goal. That is our hope.